Well, last Sunday, um, I believe, and, and I've heard much uh, that is in agreement with that, that Morgan did an excellent job of explaining for us uh, a very difficult text, but explaining for us the fact that if you are a carnal Christian, a person who professes Christ, a person who says they know Christ, but as verse 26 of chapter 10 says, goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then that person has no assurance of salvation. And that person, uh, in a lot of ways, should be shaking in their boots or quaking in their boots. Uh, Morgan used the word frightening to describe the, the threat level for these people in verses 26 through 31 of chapter 10, and, and that's an excellent word choice. That is a very frightening passage to read. Morgan then went on to point out that it is the exact opposite for true believers, that true believers have assurance of salvation because they persevere even under tremendous persecution. And so, the believers of that day, according to verse 32, endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So, what kind of struggle did they endure? Well, let's say, I'm going to put us in the situation they were in. So, let's say we are in the situation similar to what was going on in the first century. During that time, there's a real possibility that Christianity was um, illegal definitely frowned upon in society. And, and let's say we have a brother in Christ arrested and in prison for being a Christian. Let's say it's Ken Bandy. So, Ken, you're in prison now. I didn't ask for Ken's permission to do this, so I, I apologize, brother, if I've hurt your feelings for, by putting you in prison. Um, so, in today's day and age, we would, you know, generally, if that were to happen, we would try to post bail and look for a lawyer. But this is the first century, and so Ken uh, has to stay in prison. And when it came to his basic needs in today's day and age, we really wouldn't have anything to worry about. The prison would be a place that would feed him, they would clothe him. But this is not so in the first century. If you were in a Roman prison, you didn't have heating and air, you didn't have pest control. They didn't feed you. A, a prisoner's basic needs were, were met by family or friends who came to visit them. You didn't have cable television back then in a Roman prison. So we understand that if we go to a brother in Christ, I'm going to sit down. <laughs> Most of you know I have a, a sciatic issue going on right now, so we'll see if the stool helps. Um, Many of us know that if, if we have a brother in Christ who is in prison solely for the being a Christian, what's going to happen to us if we say, okay, well, Ken really needs food, Ken needs a blanket, let's go give him some food, blanket, you know, his basic needs, that sort of thing. What's going to happen to us? We're going to be pegged for Christians. So we risk the opportunity to join Ken in prison if we go and try to provide for his basic needs. So we have a private meeting, you know, we, we, we gather together and we kind of figure out, okay, what are we going to do with this? Uh, what if we just send his family? They're supposed to go and maybe they want, you know, and we kind of come up with this plan and we decide, gulp, 
let's go take care of our brother who's in prison. So we bring him food and a blanket. And let's say maybe by second visit or third visit or something like that, we go to the jail with our family or something like that, we provide for his needs, and then when we come home to find, we find our home ransacked and our property pretty much confiscated. And that's essentially what is happening to these believers in verse 34. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, if a genuine Christian is indicated by sacrificial compassion and and maybe not persistent sin, if, if a genuine Christian is indicated by perseverance and endurance and not by shrinking back, and really if the fuel that we saw according to verse 10 uh, and, and foundation for this, this perseverance that is happening in the faith, if the fuel for that is faith, then maybe it would be good to give a tutorial on faith. And so Mystery Man does just that in chapter 11. He begins by kind of defining what faith is, and then begins to show these Jewish believers, especially the ones who were kind of, kind of entertaining the idea of going back to the ceremonial law. They were saying that, you know, it's not grace, it's, it's the sacrificial system. It's, you know, jumping through all of these hoops that God has for us to be good, obedient Christians and that sort of thing. Especially for those people, Mystery Man lays out for us that the foundation of our faith and the foundation of their faith, not to mention the foundation of their whole really Jewish and religious heritage, is in faith, not in works, not based on obedience to the law, but based on trusting in what Christ has done for them at the cross. And so this morning we're going to see how our Mystery Man kind of answers the question, what is faith? So, Point number one is this, faith is a deep confidence in what God has said. Faith is a deep confidence in what God has said. Verse one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. This word assurance literally means to set under, and it's kind of the idea that that this is the basis of something. So I often think of the, maybe the, the Sermon on the Mount where at the end Jesus says, whosoever hears these words of mine will be like a man who planted his house on a rock, and whosoever doesn't hear these words of mine is like a man who planted his house on the sand. The waves come, the storms come, and crashing down, and the house on the sand is in pieces. And the reason is, is that the foundation is the issue. And so we're talking here about when he says the assurance of things hoped for. He's talking about why do these Christians hope for things? Why do they have such great hope for these things that they don't see? And and here essentially is the assurance. So I want to go back to kind of chapter 10 for a second and kind of look at our friends who are persecuted here and 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 use them kind of as a as an example to teach us what it looks like, what this assurance of things hoped for looks like and means. So if you want to kind of look back at chapter 10, we're going to kind of stroll through that. See, we have these believers who had compassion on those who are in prison, and their property gets plundered, which essentially just means ransacked or taken away. And I want to notice two things about this 
short little two or three verse moment that's here in chapter 10. And the first thing I want to look at is how they considered getting their property plundered. Okay, so how did these people consider or take in what happened to them when their property was plundered? Well, the Scripture says there that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And that joyfully accepted literally means kind of a a gladness and a rejoicing over the fact that their house was torn apart. See, their property was their home right? Your property generally is your home, unless you're kind of a two or three property owner, then one of those properties is your home. Their property, you know, if it were kind of an agrarian society, but that, that, that's a real possibility, but their property was their livelihood. You know, you might lose your house, but you might lose your farm as well, and therefore you'd lose your way of surviving. Their property almost probably was probably something that, w- that, that belonged to a dad or a granddad and that was passed down to them, and they planned on passing that down to their son and then their grandson and so forth. You know, it wasn't just geography, it was, it was, it was legacy. And now they, they potentially have, have lost it all simply because they brought a blanket and some food to someone in prison. Now, there's no doubt that many of us, maybe all of us would go, we're not going to ask for a show of hands, but maybe, you know, many of us would say, you know, yes, I'll I'll go see poor Ken Bandy who's in prison right now. But that number, I think, might thin out if we knew we would come back to a shredded home. And that number would probably even thin out even more if we were told we needed to be happy about it. I mean, can you imagine you, you come home with your family, front door's kicked in, all the windows are smashed, all your furniture is cut open and broken in pieces, there are holes in the walls, all jewelry is gone, the television and phones and computers are shattered and in a pile in the corner, the fridge is open and the food is nowhere to be found, the tanks on your toilets have been smashed and there's water everywhere. Your clothes are everywhere. Your, your, your potted plants, if you have any of those inside, have been thrown against the wall and there's dirt all over the place. And the car, maybe, that you left behind now has knifed tires, broken windows, and scratched up paint. And there literally is nothing you can do about this because this is the government who did this. This is a government-sanctioned action against your home. And so you, you take your family, you say, come on, honey, come on, kids, and, and, and you kind of go to your living room, you stand in your living room amidst all the piles of trash and, and amidst all the dirt and whatever else, and you, you join hands together and you sing the doxology. Standing in there in the middle of a mess saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is a very anti-human thing to do, but this is how the believers responded in Hebrews 10. The second thing to kind of notice about their reaction is their assurance of things hoped for. Letter number B, their assurance of things hoped for. 
The underlying reason for their joyful acceptance of of the plundering of their property, according to verse 34, was they knew they had a better home that was essentially for all intents and purposes untouchable. Now, it's very interesting that they use the word new. The text is not talking about another earthly home, excuse me, or property that was in another region. And so the local officials or the local authorities couldn't touch it because it's way up north. No, they're, they're talking about a heavenly possession that is for every true believer. It's talking about a, a possession many of these people wouldn't enjoy or, or, or even see for another 15 to, to 55 or so years. I mean, think about that. They, they were rejoicing over this heavenly possession that they had, but they would never see it nor be in it maybe for a decade or six. So how did they know to the, to the point of rejoicing at the plundering of their property that they had this possession? And here is the simple answer, because God said so. Because God said so. They, they would have been familiar with Scripture, and so they would have been familiar probably with the Gospels. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, they would have known that Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. There it is. For your reward in, is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They would have also been familiar with passages like John 14, where verses 1 through 3, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told told you that I go, excuse me, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And then 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter wrote his letter uh, before, probably time-wise, before the book of Hebrews, so there's a possibility this church would have known of Hebrews' letter as well. So in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so these believers had confidence in what God had said, and so they rejoiced in the loss of their home. And just to give you some perspective, just to kind of whet your appetite for, wow, could I do that? Could I, you know, lose my home over giving Ken Bandy a blanket and a meal? Is that, is that really something that I would consider doing? Let, just to give you some perspective, they had confidence in what God said, and because they had confidence in, God, in what God said, they are currently in year approximately 1,935 of perfectly enjoying that better home in heaven right now. They are. I mean, give or take the time when the letter got to them, give or take the time of, you know, that sort of thing. I... I did the math, and, and you know how wonderful I am at math, Michelle Boffman, but, um, uh, um, but, but you know, 
you know, it's about 1935, 1,935 years. So faith is, is, is the conviction of things not seen, as it says in that verse, you know, which is really kind of a restatement of the same idea. These early Christians did not see God's promise of a, of a better place with their eyes. They didn't. Yet they operated on a conviction that God is faithful to His promises. And so, so the better place, which is really kind of a gigantic understatement when you kind of think of, okay, here's your home, but you have a better place. You know, kind of an upgrade. That is a serious understatement, but that better place, that magnificent place, that perfect place that was made for them by God was already theirs. Now, there is a, a real possibility that if you live and die in America, you probably will never face a situation like the believers did in Hebrews 10. You just won't. Maybe not in your lifetime, at least. So, so where does this apply to us? Well, on a much smaller scale, probably, we also face situations where the, the Word of God is speaking to us, and, and though the consequences aren't as dire as what they face, there is still pressure that seeks to discourage us from believing what God has said. So, as a, for instance, an illustration I've used over the years and years of student ministry, shared this about a zillion times with students, but this applies to, to all the kids in the room as well, not just the teenagers, but this applies to all the kids as well. So let's say you go to your parents and say, mom and dad, hey, hey, mom, hey, dad. And then what my daughter does when she doesn't get my attention, she goes, Bill Turner. And that, you know, kind of raises the hair on the back of my neck and I say, don't call me Bill Turner, even though it's my name. So you go, mom and dad, can, can I do blank? We won't fill it in, but, but can I do blank? Because if I do this, it will make my life complete. I will be so happy. I will be fulfilled as a human being. If I, if I do this, then I will be living the good life. And your mom and dad say, no. No, you, you, you can't do that. And you start wondering, how am I going to survive? But Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, where, where God speaks to you, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, you know, that verse maybe comes to your mind and you think, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. See, the only thing your eyes are seeing in, the, in that moment is I have to do blank in order to live the good life. I have to do blank in order to be fulfilled. I have to do blank in order to be happy. But God says in verse 3 that it may go well with you. So, so God is promising you the, the good long life if you obey your parents. And since, hopefully, you have true faith, which is a deep confidence in what God said, you tell your parents, okay, thank you. Believing that God has something better and more abiding for you than blank, the thing you wanted to do. And adults in the room don't think that, that you know, there aren't truths and promises that apply to how you are living your life either. There are. There are. 
And so we face these dilemmas, these daily dilemmas sometimes of, I'm, I'm faced with a decision, I know what God says, but I can do this, or I should do this, or I want to do this, even though I know it's in direct contradiction to that. What do you do, people who claim to have true faith? You do what God says. You have a deep and abiding conviction or confidence in His Word. The second thing is, uh, faith is the legacy we all must pursue. Faith is the legacy we all must pursue. Now, I have been trying, I'm, I'm trying in this message and, and to avoid the rest of the chapter. Because you kind of have this definition of faith, and then you really have all of these examples that are just basically following the guidelines of what was just previously said in verses 1 through 3. But I know that we're going to kind of look at the individual faith of, of each person named there as much as we can. And so next week we'll be looking at the faith of Abel. But I'm trying to avoid it, but, but, but there's something that needs to be pointed out. Mystery man says in verse 2, for by it, talking about faith, the people of old received their commendation. Well, the people of old he is talking about is everyone he is about to list in the rest of the chapter. And so I'm going to go try and avoid kind of skimming over verses 4 through 34, which is very simple to do. You know, just say, well, here are the people of old and here's what that is. But I want to make this observation here that helps us kind of understand verse 2, and that is this. When you, when you read Hebrews 11, 4 through 34, you could, if you just kind of give it a cursory reading or something like that, you could get the impression that these people of old, as they are addressed in verse 2, you know, kind of borderline did nothing wrong. You could really think, man, oh man, I'm a little bit intimidated when it comes to this faith thing because these guys are like, you know, splitting rivers. But we know by going back to the Old Testament and reading the more detailed stories of many of their lives that this is not true. So, for instance, in Abraham and Sarah's world, you have the whole Hagar incident. With, with Gideon, you have Gideon starting as the destroyer of idols, and then when you see him at the end of his story, he is uh, becoming an idolater. They're saying, you know, what, you've delivered our nation, how can we reward you? And he says, well, give me all your gold. It's hanging around your camel's necks and that sort of thing, and he makes an idol. And it says, and the people hoard after the idol. So what exactly is, is Mystery Man seeking to accomplish by writing the way he wrote? Well, the answer, in other words, kind of giving these guys a lot more shine than they actually have. The answer is in verse 2. He's essentially saying, or, or kind of writing to us from verse 2, that, that anything these people of old did that was worthy of legacy, that was worthy of commendation from God, were things that they did through faith. And that's really important to point out. Because sometimes we can get mixed up priorities and say, what's, what's going to give me legacy? What's going to cause my life to have value? What are some things I can pursue after? So we ask the question, why is faith, you know, such an important thing that it kind of reaches that legacy status or something that, that is commended by God? And that, just a couple of things that are really important. Number one is this, 
It is impossible to please God without faith. Okay, so a little later in this chapter, there's another description of faith in verse 6 that says, and without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And so a life without faith is, for all intents and purposes, a life that, that ignores God. You say, how do you get that? Well, if you were to, if you were to kind of flip this verse, you could, you could say that a life without faith is a life that, that does not draw near to God. It's a life that does not draw near to God because that, that person believes that God does not exist. And then if, if God did exist, just to entertain that idea, then a person who does not have faith would basically believe that he is not a rewarder of anyone, that God essentially is a monster. And, and that sounds very similar to the kind of the war, try, war cry of the militant atheist of today. You know, that they say, there is no God. And oh, by the way, if he does exist, which, you know, they leave that, if he does exist, he's just a monster. So, so believing that he exists means acknowledging basically that your life, well, excuse me, acknowledging, excuse me, with your life who he is. That's, that's what it means to, to believe. If I believe, let's say, Melissa Turner exists. She's my wife, so that's nice and everything, but it really doesn't kind of change your life if you believe another human exists. But to say you believe God exists means that you acknowledge with your life who He is because you have to. He's God. He's, he's uh, as the Scripture says, He's the beginning and the end. He is sovereign over all things. He is glorious and will not share His glory with anyone else. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is light, and in Him there is no darkness. He is holy. He is love. As Psalm 36, 5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. And so to say God exists, I acknowledge God's existence is not enough to just kind of intellectually assent to that truth, but it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of who He is. It's giving Him the respect due His name. Therefore, a person knows through faith that He is also a rewarder of those who seek Him. So the life of Faith pleases the Lord because it pursues the Lord, and that is kind of the only legacy worth pursuing. The second observation I want to make is the life of faith is the only life that displays the glory of God. And here we kind of have a, a question of priority. See, here's the reality. Every person in here, every person on the planet, every person that is alive is displaying the glory of something. That's just a reality. It's not that Christians are worshipers and, and atheists are not or agnostics are not or something like that. Every person shows the value of something. They, they display the glory of something. We were made to be wowed, and the thing that wows us most is generally the thing that gets the most glory from our life. And so, if you could have only one word on your tombstone let's say. And that word, maybe let's say, would be the thing your life glorifies the most. You say, well, I'm young. I got time. Don't say that. 
So you've got your tombstone, you have that one word that glorifies the thing you most glorify in. What would that word be? I mean, it would be money. There are a lot of people who have a tombstone that would say money or wealth. Would it be philanthropy? Which, you know, is a big word that just means it'd be a lot easier just to put the word others on, on your tombstone. Maybe it's Netflix. It's a very small life, but some people would put Netflix on their tombstone. Maybe it's that special someone in your life, which wouldn't work because that's not one word, but you would put Joe, Alyssa, Mandy, Frank. You put that one word on there is because you lived for Frank, or you lived for Mandy, or you lived for whomever. Or maybe your word is Christ. See, the point, every, the point is that every person who seeks to build a legacy generally builds it on what they consider to be the most important thing, right? And, and Jesus, according to the Word of God, is the most important thing in the universe. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you cannot know God and his son except through faith, and if you cannot draw near to God and therefore to enjoy God, forever except through faith, then basically, folks, the, the logical conclusion there is the life of faith is the one that knows and delights in and therefore glorifies God and His Son. And so the application to that is to ask yourself, you know, what kind of legacy are, am I seeking to establish? What kind of life am I living? Can you say that are you living in such a way that if you were to die unexpectedly, those who knew you best would put he or she lived to point others to Jesus on your tombstone? Could they? Family's kind of milling around, maybe friends or something like that, and what, what, what are we, what's, what's our last memory of Bill? He was great at foosball. Let's put that on the tombstone. No, would, would, would you, after an unexpected death, have that written as your epitaph? The final point here, point number three, is this. Faith is the ability to understand an infinite God. And this is a precious, precious thing. Faith is the ability to understand an infinite God. Verse 3 says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now I know that when our mystery man said, by faith we understand, he did not mean in any way, shape, or form that we fully comprehend. We do not fully comprehend all that there is to know about God's creation of the universe. But through faith, we have zero problems with the truth that the universe was created by the Word of God. We have zero problems with that. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. 
See, we have zero problems also that God made all things seen from things that are not seen. The technical term is ex nihilo, which basically just means from nothing. We have no problem believing that God created the universe from nothing. And the reason we have zero problems with these things is kind of twofold, and we'll land the plane with these last two points. Point number one is this. We understand an infinite God because we have read about Him. We understand an infinite God because we have read about Him. I love Daniel 4. If you remember the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, walks out on his porch and says, look at this great Babylon, which I'm paraphrased, look at this great Babylon with which I've, I've put together, I've built that sort of thing. And then it says, while the words were in his mouth, this holler from heaven, this voice from the sky says, how dare you? And so we know that judgment hits on Nebuchadnezzar's life that for several, several weeks and Years, he's out in the field eating grass like an ox, and he's just an animal. And then in chapter 4, he comes to his senses, and I love his testimony in verses 34 and 35. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none, I love this, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Our God is an infinite God. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is another word for the dead, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Our God is an infinite God. 1 Timothy 6 verses 15 and 16 says, he who is blessed, talking about Christ and says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our God is an infinite God. I'm sorry, those verses were about God. So we've we've read page after page, scripture after scripture that points to the fact that God is not someone who just ever wrings his hands. God never wrings his hands. He's infinite. He's infinite in time, he's infinite in power, he's infinite in strength, he's infinite in glory, he's infinite in love, he is perfect in all things. But the second thing is this, because you could kind of say that and say, okay, well, you know, uh, atheists have the same information, agnostics have the same information. I mean, there are some atheists out there that probably know the Bible better than I do or better than everybody in this room does or something like that. They're reading the same stuff. They're reading about this God that you're talking about, Bill, but but they, you know, just as soon spit in God's eyes do anything. So the second point is this, and this is what's most important, is that is this. We understand an infinite God because we have experienced Him. 
True believers do not have some private page on YouTube where they go and watch the video of the infinite God speaking the worlds into existence. That doesn't exist. Be kind of cool, but it doesn't exist. Nobody on this planet has, has seen with their eyes the creation of the universe. But, but we know as Christians that God is infinite because it would take an infinite God, and here it is, to separate us from our sins. If you are honest about your sin, then you know that nothing can deliver me from this. As, as Paul says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You know, who can deliver us from sin? And the answer is the infinite God. There's no one in this room that is unaware of the inescapability of sin. Now, some people might, like Romans 1 says, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They push it down. They say, I know I'm a sinner, but I, I've got this, or I'm a dysfunctional, or I'm a product of my parents, or they, you know, they make excuses for their sins, or they call it something else than what it actually is, or something like that. But everyone, if they were honest with themselves, would know, I can't get away from my sin. But honest people who acknowledge the fact that sin is absolutely inescapable have precious, precious promises from God. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Paul, speaking to the Ephesians, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. There's no way a, a dead person can escape death. They're kind of stuck. If you went to a funeral, I don't recommend this, but if you go to a funeral and it's like an open casket, do not go up to the casket and say, Arise! Death is inescapable. And so, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A very bleak picture, but this is talking about the inescapability of our sin. We, we walk this way. We breathe this. We live this. We thought this way. We were pursuing after these things because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then verse 4 starts with, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. Folks, we have experienced an infinite God because he rose us from the dead. It says, by grace you have been saved. And raised up, <coughs> just to go even further, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now we are technically now not seated there. But in God's reality, we are there. And then he goes on to say, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, just to wrap it up, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So in other words, by faith we understand, we, we comprehend this infinite God who takes us, takes we who were dead and made us alive. He takes we who are guilty to the core, only worthy really of his eternal wrath, which is what the scripture says there. We were worthy only of God's wrath, and he shows us mercy. 
He forgives us. He forgives our sin. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And as Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Nobody can do that unless they are infinite. A God who can do that can do anything he pleases. So my question to you is, do you know that God? Do you know that God? So, oh, well, I'll go to church. No. Do you know that God? Can you say, yes, God is all-powerful. It's nothing for him to say Jupiter and it shows up. That is nothing compared to separating me from something I dearly adored, my sin. Do you know that God? Can you say, well, I have no problems with you know, creation and, and, and that sort of thing because I have not only read about this infinite God, I have experienced him in the great grace and mercy that was shown to me by faith in forgiving me and making me alive with his son. If you don't know that God, talk to somebody else in this room who does. Come, come, come see me, come talk to one of our elders, but don't leave today without knowing this God. And folks, for those of us who know him, Check your priorities and see what your epitaph will be. Re, re, renew your commitment to the fact that when I know this week what God says, if I have any desires that contradict that, that come in against that or anything like that, if my parents tell me you have no life, then I have no life. If my wife spits in my eye, and I go to 1 Peter 3 and see husbands live with your wives in an understanding manner that your prayers don't get hindered. So amazing that sometimes when a wife spits in a husband's eye, a Christian husband turns around and starts complaining to God about their wife. And those prayers are hindered because they are not living with their wife in an understanding way. Will we believe what God says? Do we have a deep conviction of things not seen? Things like peace at home. Things like a good life, even though my life is being canceled right now and I can't have my phone for a month and that sort of thing, you know, these types of things. Do I believe God for what he says or am I just going to do what I want to do? Am I going to be like those in, first Peter, in, in verse 10 of Hebrews, or excuse me, chapter 10 of Hebrews who persistently sin after they have received knowledge of God's grace? What a scary place to be. Let's not be those folks. Let's have this true faith that was lined, laid out for us here in these, these verses. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you this morning, and I pray that your word will just do what it can only do, Lord. Work in the hearts of people here today. Help us, Father, to examine ourselves and to submit to your word. Lord, if there's someone here that has never submitted to your word, they've trusted in their 
religion. They've trusted in their righteous actions. They have justified their sin. They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and have sought to try to escape from their sin through other means, through uh, either numbing themselves from it, Lord, uh, through uh, whatever they take into their system or from making excuses for it, Lord, or for trying to run away from it, Lord. God, I pray that they would have an honest moment this morning, acknowledge that they are a sinner, acknowledge that they have sinned against you, that they are offensive to a holy God, but also know that that holy God, that that but God comes around and offers mercy, infinite mercy to them. I pray that they will understand that and be broken over their sin and confess it to you and receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God, may that be true for them today. Do not let them have another moment slip by, but I pray that you'll just do business in their hearts this morning. Father, continue to bless our worship as we not only uh, finish worshiping you here in this service, Lord, but go out and worship you in the world. Lord, we we pray for uh, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this type of situation that is in Hebrews 10, that if they go and take care of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a a tremendous uh, uh, consequence. A very bad thing is going to happen to them, whether it's destruction of their property or rejection in in their culture or, or loss of job or income or something like that. God, I pray for those believers right now that you would give them that hope that assurance of things hoped for, Lord, that conviction of things not seen, Lord, that they would delight and rejoice in, in the things of God rather than the things of this world. And so I pray that you will watch over them and keep them strong. God, I pray for our testimonies we will have this week where we will face a situation that is calling us away from trusting in your word. I pray that you will just use us, just grant us faith, Grant us courage and help us, Father, to stand against anything that would try to drive a wedge between us and you. And Lord, I pray that as a result, we will have an opportunity, Lord, to maybe give a reason for the hope that is in us. Lord, I pray for maybe students here that that are believers who are going home to situations where their parents are not believers. I pray that their obedience to their parents this week will cause their parents to have a cardiac arrest and find out what's happened to their child. And in doing so, Lord, they would embrace the gospel because if, if Jesus can change my son or my daughter's heart in that way, he can change my heart as well. Lord, may we, may we see great fruit from the study of your word this morning. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.